Today we're going to continue on talking about marriage, and we're going to be looking at, um, uh, well, I don't remember actually the passage we're going to be looking at. We'll be surprised at that when we get to it. But we're going to continue to talk about marriage. And you know, the show Scooby-Doo, I, as I go through the Bible and I preach, I look at every passage, and I'm like, what are we going to preach on today? And I read the passage, and it's always about our sin, and it's always about God's forgiveness if we'll turn and repent and receive it. And it's all about the healing and restoration that takes place when we do that. Our God is a healer. He heals our relationship between us and him through Jesus Christ. And he heals our relationship between other people. And we go through life and we experience difficulty. And we're all like, why? Why does it have to be this way? Remember the show Scooby-Doo? Every episode, every single episode, there's this ghost or there's this monster. And everybody says, who's... What is this monster that's come? What is this ghost that's come? How are we gonna? What? Are they, and then every time, who? What, what? What is this ghost? And they catch it and they, oh, it's it's Farmer Dan, you know. And every episode, it's some dude dressed up like a ghost with some flower on his face or a sheet over his head or something like that. And the people are always surprised by it. And it's the same way in our life. We go through life. Why is this happening in my marriage? Why am I fighting with my neighbors? Why is work going so bad? And you pull off the sheet and it's your sin. Surprise. Same thing every episode. <laughs> and so today we're going to talk more about it. And in our marriages as well. This is why our marriages struggle, because we are sinners. And last week we talked about repentance. And repentance is difficult to do, but it's absolutely key. So we talked about repentance last week, and this sermon's all in context of having heard the sermon last week. So I encourage you, if you missed it, to go online and listen to it. But repent is the first words that Jesus said in his public ministry. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent. Kanye West converted to Christianity. And like, I don't believe it. I never believe anything when these celebrities convert to Christianity. Bob Dylan wrote a whole album, a Christian album, and gave up on Christianity a few months later. And so Kanye West turns to Christianity, and I, I, I looked him up on YouTube again. And uh, he was at his concerts, and I was like, well, this might be for real. You know why? Because what he was telling the crowds at his concerts was to Repent. It's like he sounds a lot like Jesus. That's incredible. Kanye West up there telling the people to repent. This is what Jesus did. First words of his public ministry. As we're going to read in the book of Revelations, Jesus got words for seven churches in the book of Revelations. Six out of the seven, the message is repent. And so Christianity starts with repentance. Repenting to the Lord of our sin and our marriage. If we want God to move in our marriage and work in our marriage, if we want to go closer to our spouse, if we want our marriage to be healed from all the things that we do to each other over time, First thing that we have to do is we have to repent. You repent first to the Lord because your spouse is God's. And so when you sin against your spouse, you treat your spouse poorly, the person you're primarily sinning against is the Lord himself. And then you also repent to your spouse. We talked about James chapter 5, the importance of repentance. James chapter 5, verse 15. The, we'll start in verse, uh, yeah, verse 15. The prayer of faith will save anyone who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. There's power in repentance. Not only, if James says there's power in repentance for a physical healing. Isn't that interesting? But there's power in repentance, not just for our physical healing, but for our spiritual healing as well. And if we want to go closer to our spouse, we need to repent. So the first way that Jesus heals our marriage is when we turn and repent to our spouse. And today we're going to talk about how to respond to our spouse when we have that kind of conflict. I know when Sarah apologizes to me, she'll come up and say, you know, I was wrong for whatever. And I, my first reaction is, I knew it. I told you so. You were so wrong. 
Today, we're going to look at the godly way to respond to our spouse when they repent, something that's at the very core of the Lord's being. And the surprise passage that we're going to study today is Matthew 18. If you want to turn with me to Matthew 18, starting in verse 23. It says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, 10,000 talents, a worker to pay that back would have to work for 193,000 years. All right, we don't use their monetary systems. So we're not too used to it. So there's somebody who owes the master, and then he owes him 10,000 talents, which is basically a zillion dollars. All right, this guy owes his master a zillion bucks. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. A denarii is a day's wage. And so he owed his master 193,000 years of wages. And somebody owed him a hundred days of wages. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I'll pay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay that debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And so here we have a situation where one guy is forgiven a zillion dollars and somebody owes him a hundred days wage. He's forgiven of a zillion dollars. He won't forgive the guy who owes him a hundred days wage. And everybody sees this. And in verse 31, they're greatly distressed. They're creeped out. This is disturbing. What kind of person is this? This is gross. Everybody can see it. And everyone's creeped out by that. He fails to forgive. In verse 35, God says, this is what our God is like. He's the master for gifts something of a zillion dollars. And the person in his story punished the one who wouldn't forgive other people. He removed his forgiveness for them, withheld it, and made them pay the debts that they owed and says that he will do that to every one of us. He'll do that to every one of us if we don't forgive them. And a lot of times you read these passages and for some reason we don't apply them to our lives, and we certainly don't apply them to our marriages. So many Christian marriages end in divorce, and yet Jesus commands us not just to love our spouse, not just to love the people closest to us, he demands us to love our enemies. That's what godly love looks like. And so often, we come to church, we read the word, and we have no idea what God is actually like in our hearts. Not only do we not love our enemies, so often we don't treat our spouse with love either. And spiritual maturity 
Spiritual maturity is understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ and applying it to your life more and more and more and in more areas. Now, as we grow in our faith, Satan distracts us from what God would actually have for us and gets us to turn to other things. And there's a lot of good things that Satan turns us to, but a noble idol is just more deceptive. To have a noble idol is just easier to deceive people with. And so therefore, as we go through our faith and we grow in our faith, a lot of times Satan gets us to turn from the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a focus and we turn to something else. We'll turn to our spiritual gift and that'll become our focus. If we're an intellectual, no longer do we focus on the gospel. We focus on the word. We're going to be studying the book of Revelation. So many people, they study the book of Revelation. I got to understand all the science. I got to understand all the things. They fail to apply the gospel to their marriage. So many people who are musical, right? I'm, they get focus off of that. My focus is on playing this instrument for the Lord. This is what I do, and then get your focus off the gospel. People are prophetic. They love to take their focus off of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and my faith is now about having visions from the Lord. It's having God speak to me. It's this, it's that, it's the other thing, whatever it is. God wants our focus to be on the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of these other things will come and they're good and they're godly, but Satan gets us to focus on all this other stuff and think that we're spiritually mature if we do these other things. Actually, we're spiritually mature if we understand the gospel and continue to apply it to our lives. What has Christ done for me? Well, he's forgiven me a complete forgiveness of all that I have ever done that is ungodly. Christ has removed it all. He's taken the punishment for my sin, which I deserve. And what does that mean in my life? Well, it means that I need to forgive. Before the story, at the beginning of the story, in Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, it says, Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus says, seven's a lot, Peter. If you do it like twice, especially if it's something really big, if you forgive him like twice, that's plenty. No, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, Peter, we think Peter's being stingy here. I don't know if Peter comes in the Lord, because a lot of times you've heard this in church and things, we know the answer of Jesus Christ. Oh, silly Peter, it's a lot more than that. Think about what you, how many times you would have said to the Lord, right? Whether Peter's number seven here is literal or figurative, either way, think about how many times you said, think about how somebody hurt you really bad. And think about, you're struggling with that. You're like, do I have to forgive him for that? And so you come to them, Lord, with that in your mind. You say, Lord, how many times have I got to forgive people? How, what number would you have said? Once? Right? How many times have I got to forgive somebody if they do this to me? Once? Better not happen again. And so Peter's not being stingy at all. Peter comes to him and says, seven times. Now, if he's thinking literally, seven times is a lot when somebody hurts you. It's more likely that actually Peter's speaking figuratively and the number of seven is a number of complete wholeness. God created the earth in seven days. He created all that there was in seven days. And so seven becomes very metaphorical and symbolic for completeness. And so when Peter comes to the Lord, he's not being stingy. He's coming and saying, God, essentially was saying, God, when somebody sins against me and they hurt me, do I got to forgive them completely? Do I have to forgive? And, and Jesus says, completely? You got to forgive them. You know, you thought that's what godly love looked like. You got to forgive them Completely, completely, completely. You've got to forgive them way more than that. And so here Peter comes to the Lord. He's not being stingy, but God says godly forgiveness is beyond what you even understand or think. 
I know a family, um, Sarah had uh, these great neighbors in St. Louis. They were just, they're wonderful people. And uh, somebody got a hold of their keys and he wakes up the next morning, he comes out and they've stolen his new truck. And he realizes, I must have dropped my keys yesterday when I was getting out of the car. I must have dropped them. They found them on the sidewalk. And they stole my truck. And he can't get to work. And he calls the police. They stole my brand new truck. He literally had a brand new truck. And they're trying to figure this out. And he's giving his report and stuff like that. And then I don't know how he gets home. A friend drives him home. Police drive him home, whatever. He's going to take the car to work. And he gets out of the police car. And he looks around and says, where's my car? Not only did they just buy a brand new truck, they just brought a brand new car. And turns out what keys were on the keys to the key ring to the truck, the keys to the car. They stole his truck and then they came back for his car. And he's probably thinking, how am I going to get over this with the truck? What kind of evil people? And here, now he's got to forgive him for the car too. And that guy comes to Jesus. That guy comes to the Lord. How many times I got to forgive somebody? Holy, completely? And Jesus says, yeah, forgiveness is greater than you ever managed. Imagine if they steal your car and your truck and your boat and your motorhome and your four-wheeler and your house, and then they repent to you, you need to forgive them. That's what godly forgiveness looks like. Should I forgive them? Yes. And what if they do it again? Do I forgive them? Yes. What if it hurts really bad? Yes. What if they do it again and again? Yes. Godly forgiveness is bigger than we can imagine. It doesn't come naturally because we're not godly. And we think about this in our lives and we think about it with thieves. We think about bad people. And we forget that, that we need to forgive our spouse. We forget to apply it to our marriage. The verses that are the most challenging are not for the people out there. They're for us. They're for the people we live with primarily. What kind of relationships was Jesus thinking about when he said this? Probably the ones we have all the time. When Jesus tells this story to illustrate what it's like if we fail to show that forgiveness, God's going to make us pay it all back ourselves. His death on the cross is no longer effective for us if we won't forgive others. And that's not what I say. That's what Jesus just said. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you. That doesn't sound very nice. If you do not forgive your brother from your heart, Christ has forgiven me. And marriage is one of God's primary tools to teach us I should say relationship is one of God's primary tools, but since marriage is the closest relationship that we can have in this world, marriage is one of God's primary tools to teach us about the sin in our heart. We talked a lot about it last week. We are sinners. Micah 7, 4 says, even the best of us is like a thorn hedge. And the closer you get to a thorn hedge, the more you get poked. And there's nobody closer to us than our spouse. And because we have devastating spiritual amnesia, we can go right from one, committing one sin to thinking that we're amazing people who are completely righteous again and it's everyone else's fault in a matter of moments. And marriage humbles us as we go through marriage. 
If we don't believe we're sinners, ask our spouse of all the things and all the ways that we can improve. Marriage teaches us about what God has forgiven us of. Christ has forgiven me of a zillion dollars worth of sin. That's 193,000 years and more. And if we can't repent, and if we can't show others grace, that is spiritual immaturity. Doesn't matter what our spiritual gift is, doesn't matter how much knowledge we have, doesn't matter our church attendance, doesn't matter how much we speak in tongues, none of that matters if we can't repent and forgive. This is what Jesus looks like. This is God's primary image. It's his primary nature. God is our savior. He's a forgiver. He's a savior. And when we don't forgive, people have a right to look at us like the people in verse 31. What's wrong with that person? Don't they know the Lord? A forgiven person is a forgiving person. And Matthew chapter 5 comes at it from the other way. But last week we talked about repentance, so still fits. You know, I did preach on Matthew 5. I, I don't even remember these verses. I don't remember even talking about them. But Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, you're like, oh, you know, how important is this? Right? What's important is my, is my other focus that I love so much. How important is it, is it to focus on the gospel? If he didn't, chapter 18 didn't convince you. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. That's how important reconciliation is. If you're sitting here worshiping and you realize that you haven't forgiven somebody or they haven't forgiven you, go, because that's what's important. That's way more important than your worship. Why? Because that's what Jesus does. He reconciles people to himself and to other people. That's the foundation of what Christianity, that's what it does. And come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Same type of thing. Doesn't matter how much you worship the Lord. You come to church and sing, convince yourself that you're following God. What it really means to follow God is that you follow Jesus Christ and you apply the gospel more and more to your life and more and more to your relationships. And a lot of times when I'm preparing a sermon on forgiveness, I'm like, oh Lord, I'd like something you knew to talk about today. I'd like something new, something interesting, something that people haven't heard since they were in kindergarten. And some of you might think we were talking about marriage today, we're talking about forgiveness. I've got that, now I've heard that message. But how many relationships in your life right now sit unreconciled? How many of your siblings are you not talking to right now? What sort of fight did you have in your marriage last week that you just agreed to disagree and put up a boundary and move on? A lot of times you think, I've been in church for 30 years. I've heard a lot of sermons on forgiveness. But we need to hear it again because that's what spiritual maturity is. God's nature is to forgive. God's character is that he died a brutal death for the sake of the very people who sin against them. And that kind of forgiveness doesn't come naturally to us. It actually has to be learned. And the way to learn forgiveness, the only way to learn forgiveness is to enter into a relationship 
and have such vulnerability that another sinful person has the opportunity and takes it to sin against you repeatedly over and over and over so that you can learn about how God forgives you. Welcome to marriage. I do a lot of premarital counseling. Nobody's ever come to me and said, we want to get married. And I say, why? And I say, well, you know, I want to be more holy. And so I want to open myself up to a lot of terrible treatment so I can learn to forgive as God forgives me. (laughs) But marriage is not about our happiness. It's about our holiness. The Lord wants you to be more like his son, which means he has blessed you. With another person, if you're married today, he's blessed you with another person who can teach you about how God forgives you. And to make anything work, you need to learn forgiveness. It's an essential spiritual discipline. The people who can't forgive, they can't get through anything in life. Now, as I'm going to mention in a moment, thank God I'm not married to one of those people. I'm actually more like one of those people But I've worked with those people. I've been friends with those people. And any little bump in the road, they can't forgive. They can't get over it. And they have to blow it all up. They're constantly switching jobs. They're constantly switching partners, spouses, marriages, locations, moving, moving. Because everybody offends them. They're always the victim. And they can never let anything go. If you can't forgive, you can't get over anything. And that makes forgiveness an essential spiritual discipline if we're going to succeed at anything. I did uh, some pastoral training under a guy named Gary Mueller, who I just love that guy so much. He was a chaplain at Presbyterian Homes, which takes care of you know, elderly people who aren't quite hospice but need a lot of care. And uh, he'd do these things, like forgiveness training. And I said to him, he put a sign on his door for forgiveness training. And it's an interesting about, thing about spirituality. Because when you put that you're going to talk about God on the door or on a fire, you'll get some people who really care about God, and you'll get other demon-possessed people who are so offended at the idea of God, they've got to come and attack it. It's unreal. That happens to churches. It happens to everything. There are some people who come to worship the Lord, and there are some people who are so offended at the message of the Lord that they got to come and attack it. That was seminary for me. I went to seminary, and there are some people who love the Lord and want to spread the gospel. There are other people who hated him. They needed to change the church, and they hated him so bad. They were spending tens of thousands of dollars to come to get a degree so they could go back to the church and said, I'm trained, and you're wrong. It's unbelievable. And here Gary put up forgiveness training, and I sat there, and the demons that came out were unbelievable. And who sat there and listened to these elderly people who had never forgiven anybody in their life. And they were so f- offended at the idea of forgiveness. It was so anti what they had lived their life by. They had to come and tell Gary he was wrong. And I sat there and I listened to him. And Gary said, we'd read all these passages on forgiveness. And Gary would say, and we have to forgive those who sinned against us. And the people would say, but you don't know what they did to me. You don't know what they did to me, Gary. My parents always loved my sister more. They treated her better. You don't know what they did to me. You're telling me I have to forgive them? Yes. Yes. No. Say yes. But Gary, my brother stole my girlfriend. They were happily married forever. I never had another person that I loved that much. You're telling me I got to forgive him? And Gary would say yes. It was incredible. And they thought they were right. They thought that they were doing was right by hating and holding grudges. And you look at these people who sat in the prison couldn't be any more clear of the bitterness and anger 
that they had lived their life with, that Satan had stole so much of their life from them because they refused to follow the Lord and forgive. And they thought they were right. <laughs> like, it never inspired to me to go back and make sure I'd forgiven people before in my life. I don't want any of that poison. That's demonic. Unforgiveness is demonic because forgiveness is godly. And unforgiveness is the opposite of godliness. If you want Satan to work in your life, hold grudges. These people, that's what Satan does. He tells us we're the victim. He loves that. You're the victim. Everybody's mean to you. Everybody's bad to you. You're the one who's right. They're the one who's wrong. You're the one who's hurt. They need to make things right with you. They need to make it up to you. They're bad. You're good. Satan loves to tell people that they're the victims. And here are all these people who have been listening to Satan their whole life, see a piece of paper on the wall that challenges their entire way they've lived, and they can't take it. Because the message of the Lord is that he turns us from being a victim who's harboring resentment to a person who's able to forgive and overcome. It doesn't mean bad things haven't happened to you. It means the power of the Lord is so strong that when you turn to him, you'll be able to forgive like he does. We think it would be hard to forgive someone who does damage us, like steal our car multiple times. But I mean, how many times in our marriage do we have to forgive our spouse? He's been doing the same thing to us for 32 years. You've left the shower door open 32 years, and every time I walk by, I hit it on my forehead. That was one of our fights. I left the shower door open, and so I walked through the bathroom in the dark, nailed the shower door. <laughs> Came out and blamed me for it. I'm like, watch where you're going. It's your fault. <laughs> That's why marriage is so hard. Imagine somebody stealing your car for 32 years. But the power of God is such that forgiveness can overcome anything. And without it, the Lord holds his forgiveness from us. Do you want to be saved? You have to forgive. You think you believe in the Lord? You think you know him? If you don't forgive, you're deceiving yourself. doesn't matter how many times you prayed a prayer of salvation when you were six. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. And at this point, I want to show you a Venn diagram. <laughs> Healing only comes with repentance and forgiveness. And if your spouse is mistreating you and refusing to repent, you may be at the end of your rope and everyone has their limits. Repentance without forgiveness is ungodly demonic grudge holding, but forgiveness without repentance is abuse. And so as a Christian, you don't need to be abused you need to suffer like the Lord suffered, but at some point, people cannot take any more. We are not Jesus Christ. We have our limits. And if you need to get to a healthy place and things, let me know. Our church would love to help you in that. But the Lord does call us to suffering, and so I couldn't be a good pastor and let you know that you can't, uh, and, let you, and then say that you, you can't, uh, shouldn't experience suffering in your marriage. We're all sinners. We'll all make each other suffer. And marriage is signing up for that. 
And if we want the Lord to heal us, we need repentance and forgiveness. Again, last week we talked about repentance. The Lord is not pleased when you're abused. He wants you to be free from that. And if that's happening, let me know, and we would love to help you. That's what the church is here for. But we are to suffer and forgive. So many Christian marriages end because we haven't applied the gospel to our lives yet, and yet we come to church every week and we think that we're spiritually mature. The thing is, is that many marriages fail, but there's never been a marriage that's failed when both people are submitting their hearts to the Lord and following Jesus Christ. By definition, it's impossible. People always pick on the church. They're like, oh, the church and the crusades and whatever. Well, that wasn't the church. The church wouldn't go do that. People following Jesus wouldn't go do that. And people following Jesus cannot have marriages that fail either. There's no such thing as a Christian marriage that ends in divorce. Turns out it wasn't a Christian marriage. It was revealed that somebody wasn't following the Lord. When both people repent of their sins and offer the forgiveness of Jesus, there's not a single marriage that can fail. It always fails from not following the gospel. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And we have a hard time doing that for our spouse. I don't know how often you pray for your spouse. I say it there, my, she's doing pretty well. <laughs> I didn't pray for it all for an extended period of time. Now I got her on my prayer app, my Echo prayer app, to remind me and make sure that I'm praying for my spouse. I pray for my enemies because the Bible tells me to. Sometimes I forget to pray even for my spouse. Here's a map of uh, a graph of fun over time for my marriage. A lot of times it's really fun. Hey, this is great. And then all of a sudden I leave the shower door open and she yells at me. I go, what is wrong? (laughs) Ah, why is this happening? Now we're calling each other names. This hurts. And the good thing is that my wife has amazing forgiveness. I like to hold grudges. When somebody comes and apologizes to me, I want to say, well, you're sorry? You should have been a little sorrier sooner. (laughs) But Sarah doesn't let things sit, and it's amazing that she just is able to forgive and go on like nothing ever happened, and I've never seen that before in my life. I watched her family have an argument once, and I see where she learned it from. I'm sitting down to dinner with her family and I first met her and all of a sudden they all start arguing. They're fighting and there's name calling and they're yelling at each other. And then they all got done. They're like, okay, it's time for pie. And everybody just was like, nothing had happened. It's like, what is going on? But there's godliness in there somewhere, not in all the name calling, but in the ability to continue to love people with your whole heart who have just wronged you. I'd never seen that before, and Sarah shows that to me. And I've learned a lot about God from her. She's able to move quickly and forward without resentment or anger. And it's really impressive. And I've never seen that. And because of that, we have some big fights. We've got big feelings. And we talk a lot. But then she's able to forgive, and we're able to move forward. And she teaches me about forgiveness, and we're able to get back on track. And then it's fun again. Here's a graph of how my marriage would be if it was for me. One time, and that's it. I'm never going back. But the gospel gets us back on track. 
And it doesn't stop us from just going back to there. It actually, I should have actually made the graph going up. I messed that up. The more we follow the Lord, we get healed, the more our relationships can actually be more fun. And Sarah's forgiveness of me gives me a practical way to understand that. Other people learn about God from us. We talked about that in our Image of God series. God made us in his image, and we teach other people about God, whether they know it or not or whether we know it or not. It's just an implicit thing. The kids who have the hardest time understanding that God loves them usually have parents that don't teach them that. When I was a youth pastor, I was shocked by that. I had 44 kids. As I was like 42, didn't have a whole lot of problem with it. But then the two kids who had terrible home lives that came to church could just could not accept that God loved them or understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was almost to a T. It was because they had learned ungodliness up close all the time from the people closest to them. And no matter what I taught them in church, I couldn't overcome the lesson that they were being taught on a daily basis at home. And we have the opportunity to teach people about God. They either learn truth or lies. And every time we don't forgive, we defy the image of God that he's blessed us with. And what are you teaching your spouse? You have the opportunity to teach your spouse about God and about his love for them and about his forgiveness for them. Perhaps the godliest thing that we can do in life and in our marriage is to forgive like God forgives us. And are you bearing the image of God? 